If you'll join me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, we find ourselves in verses 1 through 8 as we make our way into this new chapter. If you're following along in the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 940, page 940. The title of our sermon this morning is Let God Be True. And our key words for our worshipers in training are faithfulness, liar, and unrighteousness. Now, surely most of us are at least familiar with Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, the great London private detective with a a sharp mind and the ability to solve even the most mysterious of mysteries. The stories have been retold, they've been made into television series and movies over the years. They're all quite entertaining, but in the realm of mystery literature, it's not Sherlock Holmes who I believe was the best detective. It was the lesser-known detective, Father Brown. Now, Father Brown was a character in a series written by G.K. Chesterton. And Father Brown was both a priest and a private detective. Now, when when you think of private investigators, you often think of funny hats and long pipes and herringbone jackets with leather elbow patches, and of course, a a magnifying glass and an unending treasure trove of resources from which to draw in order to solve the most menacing crimes committed by the most elusive of criminals. But the thing I like about Father Brown is how he was different from other private eyes. His methods were not the methods of the others. Brown's approach was to make a distinction between approval and sympathy. Father Brown had empathy. He took a leap into another's point of view in his tactic. He put himself imaginatively into the minds of killers and criminals identifying himself with their desires, the way of their seeing what they want, their limitations, their, their falling into crimes. But something fascinating happens when he does that. He discovers not only what the criminal is doing, but he discovers his own capacity for murder. Distinct from them, he shares in their humanity and his potential, at least, to commit their sins himself. Now, with Father Brown, G.K. Chesterton's conscious aim was to subvert this misconception that there are really any true innocents in the world. Instead, it turns out that Brown is shockingly well-informed about the most surprising of sins because while they may not be acted out in the physical world around him, they sure are present and abiding in his very own heart. You see, Father Brown solved crimes by looking at his own heart and knowing his own heart and how it works. He was able to figure out how things happened in the crimes that he was investigating because he knew about himself and just how he would do it because he possessed that same ability to sin. Now, as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans, we now come to chapter 3, and thus far, Paul has relentlessly sought to reveal what he knows to be true about all of this. 
Because more than anything else, Paul knows what's in his own heart. Like Father Brown in in G.K. Chesterton's stories, the Apostle Paul knew that when he was writing about the fallenness of Gentiles and the self-righteousness and the pride of the Jews, that he was absolutely nailing the truth because it was so true of what he saw when he looked in the mirror at himself. The crimes against God that he lays out from the middle of chapter 1 throughout all of chapter 2 are not the crimes against God by those people out there that they are committing. No, Paul knew deeply that he himself needed to be reminded of what he gets to eventually in chapter 3 and verse 20, namely that by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now remember, in chapter 1, the apostle shows us that the gospel is the saving power of God. And he's not ashamed of the saving power of God. And if he ever ever makes it to Rome, he will proclaim the saving power of God because the gospel is more powerful than Rome. The gospel is more powerful than you and me and anyone else who seeks to stand against it. And so Paul is methodically and meticulously and masterfully weaving his argument to show how the power of God works in the life of a person. And in order to do that, the first thing he has to show us is the bad news. And the bad news is exactly what we resist, isn't it? But the bad news is what we need to hear because until we know just how bad the bad is, we will never have the eyes to see what's good. We will never know the full sweetness of what is good. So Paul confronts our resistance. He opens our eyes. And if we've been paying attention, we will surely say, I'm not as bad as I thought I was. No, in fact, I'm actually far worse. I'm far worse than I ever thought I could be. You'll recall in chapter 1, Paul went in on the Gentile sinners to show just how fallen They are. Just how fallen we are. Suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. Engaging in all kinds of reckless, dark sin as we have traded the truth about God for a lie. As we have worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. As we have lived upon the desires of our flesh and seeking the the, the satisfaction of the idols of life in this world instead of the righteousness of God that has been revealed from heaven to all of the world that we might see. And you remember, we, we got into chapter 2 where Paul anticipated that the Jews and all of their pride were hearing this about the Gentiles and they were saying, yes, Paul, tell them about themselves. They're terrible sinners. And Paul said to the Jews, now hold on a second. You're not off the hook just because you are Jewish. No, let me tell you something. You Jews likewise stand under the wrath and condemnation of God. And what Paul was doing was masterfully expounding on the Old Testament Scriptures. He was showing them that while they were depending on their works, their works would not save them. 
while they were depending on their possession of the Scriptures, the Scriptures cannot save them. While they were depending on their their circumcision, their circumcision cannot save them. Their works were not perfect works because their hearts were corrupt, and so their works were impotent to save. The Scriptures revealed the truth of God to them in a way far greater than God has ever revealed Himself to anyone up to that point. But they misused the Scriptures. They sought to fuel their intellectual pride instead of turning to the Scriptures as a means of knowing and communing with our great God. And so the Scriptures condemned them rather than offering them a righteous standing. The circumcision that they so depended on was a sign that they were set apart onto God, cut off from the world, in covenant with God, but their circumcision was a a false assurance. They wanted to, to claim this assurance for their standing before God instead of using it as a reminder that they are a blessed and privileged people. So although their body was circumcised, their heart was not, and therefore it was of no benefit to them whatsoever. Now, all of this, of course, was revolutionary. Paul is plowing and plowing and plowing, turning the hard soil of their hearts under and under and under again, exposing those things that for so long have been hidden beneath the ground, pulling them up, shining light on all of them for the first time. And that's a painful process. And every one of us who is paying attention, every one of us who is sensitive to the work of God, every one of us who has cared about what God thinks and how God works is brought to the absolute end of ourselves, flat on our backs with only one way to look and cry out for mercy. We have been humiliated. We have been brought to the lowest of lows by the apostle. Why? Because it's only when we are at the lowest of lows that we can truly be raised up to see the joys of heaven. We cannot delight in the joys of heaven until our hard hearts have been plowed and overturned and broken up by a sense of our own sinfulness. And so like Father Brown, we can look at these descriptions from the Apostle Paul and consider our own hearts. We can solve the crimes of our own sins. We can see ourselves and our own sinfulness and the depictions of who we are and what we are. We need not think about them out there because if we're honest, we'll see ourselves right here. And we know that every crime against God is what has become something that exists in our own hearts in just the same way that it exists out in the open for those who have been exposed by the words of the Apostle. This is where we find ourselves, as Paul has brought us this morning to chapter 3. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now as we come to chapter 3, we arrive at a sort of debate Paul, being the great evangelist that he is, is able to anticipate and to know the objections of the Jews, specifically as he lays out their sinful reliance upon their privileges while their hearts are far from God. And so the first thing he shows us in verses 1 and 2 is that if you possess privileges from God but misuse them, they rise up against you. Now, you can see this right out of the gate. Paul knows exactly what the response will be from the Jews. To them, he has just taken away any advantage that they have. He's denied that there's anything unique to their relationship with God at all in what they're hearing. He has ripped the rug out from under them, and what they're hearing him say is that they are no better off than their neighbors who know nothing at all of the God of Israel. It sounds like Paul is denying Jewish privilege. And so so Paul presents this in their voice. He's saying, Paul, are you denying the advantages of the Jews? Are you denying the privileges of being Jewish? And let's not get too far off without looking to ourselves. As we've seen the past two weeks, we fall into this same trap. Paul, are you denying The privilege, the advantage of being a Baptist, of being a Presbyterian, of being a church member, of being a person who's baptized, are you denying the privileges of having a Bible? You see, to the Jews, Paul was destroying their Old Testament religion because God commanded circumcision. And yet, just last week we saw, he said, you're depending on something that has happened physically, but has never happened spiritually. And brethren, listen, we believe that God commands baptism and church membership. And we should know and study our Bibles. We should dwell deeply on the riches of God's Word. Paul is not destroying all of those things. Paul is saying, though, If you think these things are what you can rely upon to win God's favor and to be declared righteous before Him, you have completely misunderstood the point. In fact, if you possess all of the many privileges from God, but you misuse them, they rise up against you to condemn you all the more, and they are not working for you. So Paul anticipates this objection But very quickly, he responds in verse 2. He says, of course, of course these are advantages. Of course there is value to what God has given to you. And then he points to what he believes is first, namely that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
No doubt, brothers and sisters, to possess the Word of God is one of the greatest privileges that we have in this life. Through the fathers and the prophets, God delivered His Word to the Jews, and then He further delivered His Word through the apostles. And while Paul points to the Jews and says that they have one of the greatest advantages in being entrusted with God's Word, think about the advantage that you and I have, that you and I possess in this regard. Yes, the Jews had the Scriptures, but listen, you and I have the Scriptures and, and we, have, we have the ability to, to read the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can, we can learn Hebrew and we can learn Greek and we have multiple English translations and we have sermons throughout the ages. We have commentaries, we have books, we have podcasts, we have the ability to read from our, for ourselves. We, we have the freedom to gather, to discuss, to learn from each other. My goodness, you, you can go online and, and, and find tremendously helpful resources on anything you could possibly want to know about God's Word today. What an amazing gift. What an incredible advantage. In our generation, we have far more than anyone has ever had before, and even more than that, as Christians in 2020 in America, we have anything that we want far more than anyone has ever had in the history of the church by a long shot. And so Paul answers your objection. Are you saying, Paul, that having all of these resources, that we can know and understand the Word of God is of no advantage to us? And Paul is saying, no, of course I'm not saying that. I'm saying exactly the opposite. I'm saying that if you have a Bible and all of these resources and you do nothing with them and you don't utilize them as a source to, to feed your soul, but instead just feed your intellectual curiosity, but you never let it do any work on your heart, if you possess the Word but are not possessed by the Word, you've squandered your advantage, and your advantage does not help you. In fact, it can only hurt you and condemn you all the more. You remember what Paul said in, back in chapter 1? You are without excuse. And here again, we're reminded of just why that is. So is there an advantage? Paul says, of course there's an advantage. Remember in 2 Timothy 1, Paul pointed out Timothy's advantage. He wrote to him, I was reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. What Paul was pointing to for Timothy was an advantage that he had. He grew up in a faithful home. Lois, his grandmother, Eunice, his mother, they possessed the Word of God and they taught it to Timothy and they weren't relying on their mere possession of God's promise that as Jewish people they were privileged to get them through life. No, they were changed. They were transformed by the Word of God. You know, sometimes I talk to Christians and it seems as though there's sort of this begrudging attitude about being brought up in a Christian home. It's as though there's this thought that, that a, a, if a Christian doesn't have a dramatic conversion in their salvation, it's meaningless or, or boring or inconsequential. 
It's as if they're thinking, you know, what I've always needed is a life with a lot of guilt and shame and regret. If only I could have mounted all of that up first, I really could have had a great story to tell everybody. There's a man who rose in prominence in many Christian circles many years ago because after 9-11 he told a story about his conversion after being raised by an imam, his father, a devout Sunni Muslim. He said that he was trained in, in terror tactics and taught to see Christians as infidels that should be killed whenever the opportunity presented itself. He talked extensively about what he learned in madrasas. He traveled around the world sharing his story. He, he wrote a book. But the problem with all of it was that he was actually raised in Sweden, and the entire story was a lie. So you see, not only was he not content with the mere reality that God might save someone like him, but he also knew that if his story was big enough and dramatic enough, that he didn't have to settle with some ho-hum Christian conversion story, but he could also become rich and famous in the meantime. And that's exactly what happened. It's a shameful thing, but there may be some of you here this morning You might think it's no better to be brought up in a Christian home. You might think you need to have some dramatic conversion story. You might think you need to have some amazing moment that you can point to, some lightning bolt from the sky, some radical event in your life where everything just changes all of a sudden, and if you don't, you just don't know if your salvation is all that meaningful. If you think that, if that's how you consider What it is to be raised under the oracles of God, you are squandering your privileges instead of delighting in them. Here's what you're failing to see. You can be the most vile sinner in the world, or you can be a kid who hears the gospel in the womb, and you were brought kicking and screaming to church by your parents who were all prepared for your kicking and screaming You can sit in every Sunday school class, go to every vacation Bible school. You can be made to memorize the creeds of the church, sing all the songs, have family worship every single night, go to Christian school. All of this can be you, but you and that vile sinner who knows nothing of God have the same need of the same God, of the same Christ who offers the same grace. Listen, just because you live in a Christian home does not defend you from God's judgment. No, in fact, every advantage that you have, maybe you're squandering that advantage apart from faith in Christ. You see, when you stand before God, the question will not be, was the Word of God in your home? The question is, is the Word of God dwelling in your heart? Is it there that you would do anything, that you would give anything that you might know and commune with our great God? You don't don't have a dramatic conversion story because God saw fit to bring you into this world, into a Christian home? Praise God! Yes, okay, maybe some of you had to endure 1990s evangelical culture, but you made it! And thank God for that. I know a lot of Christians with with dramatic conversions, and you know what all of them say? I wish I could have 
rewound my life and undo a lot of the things that I did. And you know what they're doing? They're raising their children and their grandchildren to hear and know and love the Scriptures the way they wish they did from the womb. Children, please, children, I hope you're listening to me. What are you doing with the privileges that God has given you to have parents and grandparents who brought you to church today? Who love you so much that, want, that they want what's best for you and that they will do whatever it takes to, to know that they, they can get as much truth about God into your life that they know that you need. How do you think about the church? How do you think about your time praying with your family or reading the Bible with your family? How do you think about your Sunday school class? How do you think about your, your Christian education? You have been given a gift. So what are you doing with it? You know, when I, when I get a gift that I really love, I try to take really good care of it. I protect it. I might have a special place to keep it. I try to keep it from damage, to keep it from going missing. Not only because I really like that gift but also because someone was so kind and thoughtful to give me that gift that I want to honor them for thinking about me in that way. And so, children, what are you saying about what you think of God by the way you are thinking about all of these things and all these privileges that you have in this life? Do you know that there are very few children in this world that have the advantages that you have to know the Word of God in the way that you do, to be able to hear the Word of God every single day of your life? And so how are you responding to that? Children, do you trust in Jesus? Are you putting your faith and your trust in Jesus and all of His promises? And Christian, this isn't just for non-believers. This is for you and I. Are you growing bored with your faith in Christ? What are you doing with the great privileges that God has given to you? You see, the Christian life is not meant to be lived from, from experience to experience, from, from conference to concert to whatever it is that we do. Those things are fine and they're good and they're helpful, but those are not the sum and substance of the Christian life. Communion with God is daily abiding in Christ, daily meditating on God's Word, that it would change our hearts that it would renew us in Christ, that it would continue to compel us to live by faith in the promises of God. Daily abiding in Christ is turning to all of the ordinary things that God has given us and seeing that they are enough. Do we grow weary in the advantages of the Christian faith? May it never be that we misuse these privileges lest they rise up against us. But notice, now very quickly, Paul anticipates another objection. In verses 3 and 4, he shows us that the faithfulness of God toward His people will never waver. Look again, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, once again, Paul is addressing these hypothetical objections. 
And he anticipates that the Jews might now come to him and say, yes, but those words, those, those oracles of God have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. So then, Paul, if you're right, then what happens with the promises of God? They're useless, aren't they? Now, this argument is, in the words of Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, a truly pathetic argument. What a low view of God. But really, it's no surprise that they would argue this against Paul, is it? Is your unbelief in the Word of God that He has given to you as a gift, as a possession, as a treasure? Is is your unbelief proof that God is being unfaithful to fulfill His promises? If Paul were a lesser man like I, he would say, what kind of drugs are you people on? (laughs) That's some strong stuff. (laughs) What an insane proposition. But Paul responds to them and he says, despite the failure of the Jews to believe, God's promises to save are in fact advancing and in fact our faithlessness only reveals how truly committed to His promises that God is if you think about what He has done in order to be faithful to His promises despite us. Despite us. And and to prove this point, all Paul has to say, in fact, he doesn't even say it directly, but the Jews knew exactly where he was going. He all but says it in his implication when he quotes here from the Scriptures from Psalm 51. Paul was saying, listen, my fellow Jewish countrymen, who was our greatest earthly king? Who was called the Lord's anointed? Who did God say was a man after His own heart? He was circumcised. He possessed the oracles of God. Now, of course, the the Jews very certainly would have caught Paul's implication that by him citing Psalm 51 here that he was talking about King David. All of these privileges, all of these advantages are true of David. He was a high and lofty man. He was put there by God. He was loved by God. He was gifted by God. His family tree included the most remarkable providences of God in all of history. But what does Paul point out? He points out Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Why is Psalm 51 in the Bible? Because it is where David finally comes to the end of himself and repents of his sin with Bathsheba. Ah, Paul says, so are you saying that you're better than King David? Forget that, you're not. So even though every one of us is a liar at heart, let God be true. When you claim that God is unfaithful to His promises, you are a liar. You are the liar, not God. Look how faithful He's been. And the reality is that God is vindicated when He judges sinners like us. Why? Because 
Privileges bring responsibilities. Listen, God has not failed. God will not fail. Your faithlessness is not a failure on God's part. Your faithlessness is a squandering of privileges. I hope all of us consider this important question. What will we tell God on the day that we stand before Him? Lord, I was a faithful member of Redeemer Baptist Church. Remember those people that Jesus spoke of? Lord, we did many mighty and wonderful things in your name. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we healed, we did it all in your name. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, you didn't know me. No, rather it is, you didn't want me to know you. You never bowed your knee to me. You never came to a place of humility where you truly said, Jesus, it's not about what I am doing and who I am. No, rather, it's about you being my Savior and my Lord because I have nothing to give. So all of your privileges, brothers and sisters, all of our privileges are privileges indeed. But they amount to nothing of ultimate value if our faith is not firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they are just squandered. So with that said, the Jews raise one final objection to which Paul responds and shows finally this morning that God is just in His judgments. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now here's their argument. What you're telling us, Paul, is that our unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness because even though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And it shows that He's infinitely greater and more faithful than we will ever be. So Paul, if our unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for Him to judge us? And Paul answers in verse 6 and says, if that were the basis of God's judgment, He wouldn't judge anyone in the world because all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. All of us have fallen disastrously short of the glory of God, and we all agree that God should judge. Nobody denies that reality. If He's going to be just, He must judge. And so that has to include us. So then they ask Him in verses 7 and 8, okay, Paul, Well, then if my sinning makes God look better, then that means I should just sin more, shouldn't I? And if I sin more, then God's glory is seen more clearly when He saves me in the end and still loves me no matter what. So what's stopping me from just sinning all the time so that God can look better and better? That way I'm glorifying God. And Paul responds, listen. People have accused me before of saying this, 
and it's a slanderous lie from hell. I have never said such a thing, and saying you're sinning so that God will love you or that God will be glorified, that is the epitome, the epitome of squandering your privileges. It is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. So from start to finish, these three main arguments that Paul addresses were all irrational and foolish. Even so, they accurately represent the thinking of those who had the privilege of having the Word of God but rejected it. And the truth for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that our advantage is great in every way. We have the written self-revelation of God. We know what God is like, and much of the world still does not. We know what we are like as well. But others without God's Word lack this knowledge to the extent that we know and understand. We know what God's standards are. It's hard for us to imagine what it's like to be without His book. We have no idea what it's like to grow up without the church. Our massive advantage, brothers and sisters, is not something to be trifled with. We should thank God every single day for our incalculable advantages and recognize that when God judges, especially on the basis of squandered resources, He is just. And so the question that we are left with this morning, once again, is what are we resting in? We have advantages, so what are we doing with them? The Lord has gifted us with all of the means of grace. He's given us all that we need and more that we might commune with Him and know the Father in His faithfulness and sovereign care for His creatures. That we might commune with the Lord Jesus Christ in fellowship, in His compassion, in His kindness, in His love, in His tender care for us, having suffered in His humanity on our behalf that we might commune with the Holy Spirit who works in us through the Word of God to convince us of our sins, to comfort us in our afflictions, to guide us in the way and works of holiness. Now, friends, some of you may not have experienced the breadth of these privileges that I've laid out for us this morning, but that does not leave you without excuse. Even more important, it does leave you with hope. Because you see, we have these advantages, and yet the reality remains that every single one of us still has sin dwelling within our very hearts. Christian or not, we are sinful people. And so what has God done to offer a remedy for our sin? That this may not be true of us, that when it comes time, that when we depart from this life to the next, that we can stand before God and be declared righteous. It is that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, has come into this world and has lived a perfect life to fulfill the law that God commanded that you and I could not fulfill, that we'll never come close to fulfilling, that Jesus did it to perfection, Every jot, every tittle, every ink dot was fulfilled by Christ. And so how did the world respond? They responded by bringing Him to the cross. In God's sovereign decree, Jesus died in our place, 
upon the cross. The only one to have ever lived who did not deserve to die took upon himself the weight of the sins of the world that we might live. He was buried in the ground and raised again three days later that he might conquer sin and death so that when we come to him, that we might have a plea. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, friend, by faith you can come to know communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can know the sweetness of Christ. You can know the tender mercies of Christ. You can know the sustaining grace of God. You can know the everlasting love of God. You can know the peace of God. And so will you come to Christ by faith? Not with anything you have to offer. Not with anything you have done. Not with anything you can point to and say was a work that you have accomplished or a good that is within you, but with a humble realization of who you are and what you deserve and what Christ has done to redeem and rescue sinners like us. Sinners like me. A sinner like you. Friend, come to Christ by faith. He will not turn you away. He will not spurn you. He will not reject you. And whatever you are depending on to get you beyond this life to the next will not do. Your only hope is faith in Christ. You know, in our self-righteousness we say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But God says you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What advantage does that bring for us? Well, truth be told, the amazing reality is with God that our advantage is much in every way. We must each see our own nakedness. We must make use of the great advantage of truly knowing who we are and who God is and what He wants of us and He has declared in His Word. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Are you rich in Christ? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Do you have eyes to see Christ? Let's look to Christ together that we might truly live. Amen.